As Robert Walton and his ship attempt to find a route to the North Pole, they discover on a small ice floe a dog sled with an exhausted passenger, a man named Victor Frankenstein. This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, tells a cautionary tale about technology. Using all the scientific learning and technology he could muster, Victor Frankenstein literally and figuratively created a monster, a monster he feared and who pursued him to the death. Dr. Tiffany Schubert gave this introduction to Shelley's novel to the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought as we considered the ancient and modern challenges of technology. Well, finally, we've arrived at the work you've all been waiting for. <laughs> it's pretty true, yeah. <laughs> Frankenstein. Uh, so I have to confess that this is the first time that I have ever read Frankenstein, and I was surprised by so many things. Um, I was surprised by the intensity of emotion all throughout the novel. <laughs> I uh, was surprised by the leaning into romantic cliche after romantic cliche, sort of constantly on high mountains, with craggy peaks surrounded by ice in the Orkneys, uh, right in Scotland and Switzerland, these sort of profoundly stereotypically romantic places in 18th and 19th century literature. Right? I was surprised most seriously by the depth and the complexity of the monster himself. And honestly, that's what I'm really hoping that we can spend most of our time talking about, the, uh, the kind of seminar portion of it. So I'm raising that as, as I said, my, one of my primary surprise and maybe, maybe my central question for this novel is, why does Mary Shelley give us such a rich, nuanced, morally ambiguous technological creation. What, what is she doing with that? But I'm not gonna talk so much about the monster's complexity in my, in my opening remarks. So as you may remember in Plato's Phaedrus, Thamos tells Thoth, who is eager to share the, his new invention of letters with the Egyptians, most artful Thoth, one person is able to bring forth the things of art, another to judge what allotment of harm and of benefit they have for those who are going to use them. And now you, being the father of written letters, have on account of goodwill said the opposite of what they can do. So Thamos here is cautioning the enthusiastic inventor and pointing to two separate roles, the one who brings forth the art and then the one who judges. And this is something right, that we talked about that again on the first day of, of, our, of our course together that I think kind of keeps, keeps coming up throughout the week as the one who makes and then the one who judges. And Dr. Papadopoulos had pointed out that those who, who create tend to have a fondness for their creation. Right? Uh, they, they love it deeply. I, I teach writing here at the college and actually what, one of the challenges in helping students become good writers is helping them develop enough critical distance from their own creation so that they could actually edit it beyond just changing a single comma. <laughs> it takes a long time. 
right? It takes a lot of work. And they really are so very, very attached to the thing that they have made. It is their little baby in many ways. But one of the things that I found really fascinating about Frankenstein is that Mary Shelley doesn't do the Thoth thing. She doesn't give us a proud creator who is overly enamored with his creation. The Egyptian god is a proud father. But Victor Frankenstein, on the other hand, is a repulsed father, utterly disgusted by what he has created. And in fact, he, he immediately abandons his creation. He runs out of that room right? and, uh, and sort of hopes that things will work out. Uh, I find him very frustrating. But he abandons his creation, who we find out later in the novel is just looking for love. Uh, Charlotte Gordon points out in her introduction to the, our edition of Frankenstein that this is a brilliant plot twist that separates Mary Shelley from other romantic writers like Shelley, her own husband, or Lord Byron. And this is from page 14 of the introduction. So it's in Roman numerals, page 14. And it is the second full paragraph there. It starts, if another romantic poet like Shelley or Byron had written this story, it seems unlikely that either would have devised such a scenario, the scenario of the creator rejecting the creation. In fact, in the works that they began that summer, Byron's Manfred and Shelley's Montblanc and Prometheus Unbound, both poets invented creator protagonists whose abilities make them seem heroic. But Mary was ambivalent about the prospect of men creating life. She had given birth to a child she loved, but she had lost a baby and lost her own mother as a result of childbirth. If men could control life and death, she would not have suffered these tragedies. And on the other hand, she wondered what would happen to the role of women if it were possible to create life via artificial methods. She was also concerned about what would happen to God or the idea of God, the mysterious, even mystical power behind nature. Just as I think it's very important that the women of Laputa hate that island, do you think that Mary Shelley's femininity is really important in her version right, of the, the great inventor, right, the great creator, her version really right, of, the, of the Prometheus story? So, said, something strange about Mary Shelley's project in the romantic context. And I, I want to just kind of briefly set her historical kind of scientific um, context. So Galileo and Bacon, whom we engaged with yesterday, are really at the beginning of the scientific revolution. By the time Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, science had firmly secured its cultural importance. Theodore Zolkowski writes, decades of progress and achievement had rendered science secure and unquestioning in its accomplishments. Shelley is living through uh, the industrial revolution. So right, she's, she's seeing uh, kind of like the practical vision that Bacon has for science in practice, right? In, in quite astonishing ways. And the authority of science was also definitively established. Uh, as doc Dr. Giesing pointed out yesterday, that in the 19th century, scientists had stopped reading the texts, even in their own tradition, and were simply reading contemporary, contemporary texts. So that science didn't really need to appeal to authority, in some sense, not even right to its own authority, 
and certainly not to the kinds of authorities that are so dear to say, right, the Middle Ages, which C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, science that sort of separated itself uh, from, from the past. And the, the ancients, right, as we learned in our first session together, right, they saw the tyrant as the one who transgresses boundaries and violates limits. And technology which transgress boundaries might also be tyrannical or could certainly enable the tyrant. And uh, we just talked about Swift showing us the dangers of a technological tyrant. But in the Romantic period in which Mary Shelley is writing, the creative, defiant inventor who violates boundaries is celebrated. So the one who defies authority is in fact not to be feared, but rather to be valorized. Prometheus, who has been such a central figure for us this, this week, uh, that rebel against the gods, was deeply and profoundly central to, to the Romantics right? uh, as this figure of one who heroically transgresses boundaries. In Shelley's Prometheus Unbound, uh, Zeus ends up falling from power and Prometheus is freed. So we see that the Romantic figures and thinkers and the Romantic poets even, they long for liberation from this tyrannical authority. And that attitude of romantic transgression can also be applied to science. And I quote again from Zulkowski, who says, quote, what can be done must be done is an attitude that emerged during European romanticism. So he argues it's actually romanticism and also the founding of modern research universities in Germany in particular that lead to the freedom of science from any kind of authority. Uh, note that Victor Frankenstein attends university in Germany, right, where he meets professional scientists. So the House of Solomon, Bacon's dream in the New Atlantis has become a reality. And it is a reality where science is separated from religious and political authority. Back to right, of the, the reforms of the German university were deliberately, uh, deliberately aimed at creating, you know, I guess what we would call uh, right, academic independence, right? independence, independence of thought, freedom, freedom of thought from ideological and economic and political, right, religious authorities and, and powers. Right? And so this is the center of, of science. Univer the university professors that Frankenstein meets there and able to freely practice their, their arts. They're clearly passing down right, tradition and forming, forming young and impressionable students like, like Frankenstein. They certainly don't seem to be spending any of their time looking for political patrons like Galileo is looking for support from the Medicis. Right? So there seems to be a kind of right, an economic freedom that they are enjoying. Now, to be fair, many romantics were in fact deeply concerned about the domination of science and the hell made possible by the technological innovations of the Industrial Revolution. Wordsworth is deeply concerned about the consequences of technological progress. I think we see it in, in Keats as well, this sense that our science, our technology is separating us from, uh, from nature. Remember in Frankenstein, um, as, as Victor is consumed with his creation, he can no longer find any solace in the beauty of, of nature. And that in fact actually is a very romantic critique of the scientific and industrial revolution. But nevertheless, many of the romantics were enamored with the transgressive, creative, epic, noble power of science. 
and especially the power to create life and conquer death. Right, and death is perhaps the ultimate boundary for man to transgress and the only boundary that our technology cannot yet ever conquer. Remember the Ode to Man marvels at man's technological prowess, but tells us that only against death has he no refuge. But that dream of overcoming death, so deeply rooted and so long-standing, and it was a dream deeply dear to the Romantics, including Mary Shelley's husband, uh, Percy Shelley. So this is um, a long quotation that's on the handout that I've given you. It's the first quotation on that handout there. And these are excerpts from Mary Shelley's introduction to the 1831 edition of Frankenstein. And she says, Many and long were the conversations between Lord Byron and Shelley, to which I was a devout but nearly silent listener. During one of these, various philosophical doctrines were discussed, and among others, the principle of life and whether there was any probability of its ever being discovered and communicated. They talked of the experience experiments of Dr. Darwin. I speak not what of the doctor really did or said that he did, but as more to my purpose of what was then spoken of having, of as having been done by him, who preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass case till by some extraordinary means it began to move with voluntary motion. Now thus after all would life be given. Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Galvanism had given token of such things. Perhaps the component parts of a creature might be manufactured, brought about, brought together and endued with vital warmth. So the, the Dr. Darwin that Shelley is referring to here is Erasmus Darwin, who is the grandfather of the more famous Darwin. And he was a natural philosopher and a poet. Uh, and apparently Percy Shelley really admired his poetry. And he had experimented not with, not with vermicelli, but with vorticelli. Uh, just like a, a single-celled organism by mixing water and flour together and it made the dead organism move. <coughs> but that wasn't going to bring life. Um, so it seems like the conversation then moves on to electricity and to galvanism. Uh, and, and in 1780, Luigi Galvani had made the legs of a dead frog move with electricity. So this was very, very exciting right, to the romantics. It seemed like right, maybe possibly we had discovered some principle that would allow us to conquer death, right? and, and maybe even create life. And it, of course, is this dream of conquering death and creating life that consumes Mary protagonists, Mary's, Mary's protagonist, Victor Frankenstein. Though at first his dreams are inspired by outdated authors. So on page 28, he tells us, my dreams were undisturbed by reality and I entered with the greatest diligence into the search for the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. But the latter obtained my most undivided attention. Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend the discovery if I could banish disease from the human frame and render man invulnerable to any but a violent death? Now this dream is awakened through his reading of alchemical and occultist texts. Uh, he describes his reading of Cornelius Agrippa, he was a German physician born in 1486 and apparently interested in magic and believed he could sort of integrate magic and science and religion. And as Victor reads Agrippa, we learn that, this is on page 27, a new light seemed to dawn upon my mind and bounding with joy, I communicated my discovery to my father. 
His father is very unimpressed with his discovery, but he doesn't explain to his son why it's a problem. And so Victor is left to his own devices and his imagination is captured by these authors promising secret knowledge. Uh, these authors, which include Agrippa, but also Albertus Magnus, who's the teacher of Thomas Aquinas, uh, but also had this seemingly spurious reputation for being uh, interested in alchemy. And then Paracelsus, a Swiss physician born in 1493, who's also interested in astrology. So these are kind of, these figures here are sort of shorthands for this ancient scientific uh, practice that was primarily aimed at gaining power over nature. The ability to transform one thing into another thing and the ability to perhaps extend, extend life. Now, eventually Victor outgrows these guys. These, uh, he calls them the lords of my imagination. They fall by the wayside, and actually one of the reasons that they do so is because he has an experience with electricity. He sees the oak destroyed by a bolt of lightning and asks his father about it and learns that there is, in fact, a natural explanation for this. So I think it's kind of the natural explanation replaces this magical occultist method that he was discovering in the older natural philosophers. So he's disenchanted with the old guys and doesn't immediately move on to uh, the new natural philosophers. But I think that his desire to create life and overcome death, that actually remains with him. Then when he gets to university, he's going to do some different kind of reading. He's actually going to encounter these natural philosophers. And this is something that maybe we can also talk more about as well. So I'm really interested in the two professors that he meets, Professor Krimp and uh, Professor Waldman. So Professor Kremp is a grumpy, kind of ugly, uh, which I actually find is very interesting. So Vic, when Victor sees him, he's immediately repulsed by his ugly countenance. So Victor's got a real problem with, with physical ugliness that causes him to be unable to kind of see um, what is actually happening, to see the worth of the person the creation in front of him. Oh, I think it's a real problem for him. But Professor, Professor Kremp is incredibly shocked by Victor's child, childish reading of these occultist figures. And he asks him, and this is on page 34, who says, in what desert have you lived where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies which you have so greedily imbibed are a thousand years old and as musty as they are ancient? Right. So Kremp is a sort of, straightforward, classical, modern, natural philosopher. All the old guys are dumb and stupid, and we've moved, we've moved on from them. Keep up with the pace, hey, young whippersnapper. Right. Now, we're not, Kremp doesn't actually say which fancies are outdated, but again, I think it's probably the fancy of transforming substances into gold and creating the elixir of life, those old dreams of, of alchemy. Victor is not persuaded by Kremp, nor is he inclined to read the books that Kremp recommends. This is again on page 34, I think in a, a very important passage, where Victor tells us, this is the very, it starts at the very bottom of 34 onto 35. I had contempt for the uses of modern natural philosophy. It was very different when the masters of science sought immortality and power. Such views, although futile, were grand. 
But now the scene was changed. The ambition of the inquirer seemed to limit itself to the annihilation of those visions on which my interest in science was chiefly founded. I was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur for realities of little worth. So I think it's important to note that Victor doesn't say that he has contempt for the methods of natural science. He's already accepted electricity as having explanatory power. So he's not saying that natural, that modern natural history or natural philosophy is, is wrong. It's just small. Right? It's not sufficiently epic. It's not sufficiently um, Achilles, like for his for his aspirations. So he's in fact actually much more moved by Professor Waldman. Right? And then this passage starts at the bottom of 35. And Waldman says, and I find this passage really interesting. And again, hopefully this is something we can talk about more in our discussion as well. But he says, the ancient teachers of this science promised impossibilities and performed nothing. The modern masters promise very little. They know that metals cannot be transmuted and the elixir of life is a chimera. But these philosophers, whose hands seem only made to dabble in dirt and their eyes to pour over the microscope or crucible, have indeed performed miracles. They penetrate into the recesses of nature and show the works, show, and show how she works in her hiding places. They ascend into the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates in the nature of the air we breathe. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. I departed highly pleased with the professor and his lecture and paid him a visit the same evening. Also, we learn he has very mild and attractive manners. <laughs> Once again, Victor's sort of <laughs> obsession with sort of physical um, appearance is, is problematic. So, because I, uh, I find this, I find this speech a little bit strange, right? Because Waldman points out that the modern masters recognize the impossibility of those old dreams and actually promise very little, but nevertheless somehow perform miracles. So what I wonder is what happens in this, in, this, in this novel in terms of Frankenstein's relationship to science is really that he rejects the methods of the old natural philosophers, but holds on to their dreams, right? to their vision of conquering death, of creating new life. And it may in fact be that Mary Shelley herself is pointing out that this dream is actually still in modern philosophy. As much as modern philosophy seems to be like grumpy old crimp, who says right, old busty stuff, I wonder if she herself is actually seeing that right, the dream of power, the dream of magic, the dream of being able to conquer and control the world, especially to conquer and control death, that that dream remains in the modern scientist. And what separates the modern scientist from, uh, from the ancient scientist, or the medieval scientist, is method. And it's a much more effective method. Right? It is a method that does, in fact, actually work. It has been proven to work. Right? Modern science can get things done. Ancient and medieval alchemy did not get anything done. Never actually succeeded in transforming anything into gold. Okay. Oh, in the way that they had sort of imagined right, or, or envisioned. Okay. So 
Shelley's response to this power that she sees in the modern natural, or this, this sort of like this desire for power, I should say, in the modern natural philosophers is a profoundly unromantic, perhaps even unpromethean response. On page 211, Victor urges Walton, tells him, this is towards the top of the page in an incredibly uh, emotional and romantic death scene, which involves long, elaborate speeches. He says, farewell, Walton. Seek happiness in tranquility and avoid ambition, even if it be only the apparently innocent one of distinguishing yourself in science and discoveries. Yet why do I say this? I'm, I have myself been blasted in these hopes, and then something weird, yet another may succeed. Oh, Victor is a weird, weird guy. So he sort of sees and then doesn't see uh, constantly, I think, throughout, throughout this novel. Great. So don't be ambitious, even if it is the apparently innocent one of distinguishing yourself in science and discoveries. I think that Shelley, Mary Shelley herself, realizes that this apparently innocent ambition is not an innocent one. Again, it is not, it is not, is not the kind of crimp version of natural philosophy. It instead is this pursuit of, I don't know, the ability to create miracles, the ability to have power over other things. And Shelley herself actually describes um, the moment that Frankenstein appears in her imagination as she's trying to figure out how to write this novel. And I think, I think that description is very telling. And this is also a description on on the handout. Here where she sees in her imagination the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful machine, or some powerful engine, excuse me, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock in, in, the, in the 18th and 19th century, mock there means imitate, although it can have the, that sort of making fun of, but imitate the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away from his odious handiwork, horror stricken. He would hope that left to itself, the slight spark of life which he had communicated would fade, that this thing which had received such imperfect animation would subside into dead matter and that he might sleep in the belief that the silence of the grave would quench forever the transient existence of that hideous corpse. So Shelley creates an inventor who mocks, imitates God. Victor's ambition is to, imi is to imitate God, of course, right? To become, he, he, he imagines a kind of father to mankind. And the monster all throughout this novel compares his situation to Adam's in Milton's Paradise Lost. But Adam, the monster says, came forth from the hand of a perfect God who cared for his creature. Victor, on the other hand, is a deeply and profoundly failed, or excuse me, deeply and profoundly flawed creator. And I think that this is something that's deeply, deeply interesting to me. It's what kind of, what kind of creator does man become when he creates, right? What are the duties that man has to his creation and what ways does Victor fail to, exercise those duties to his creation. Now, of course, Mary Shelley herself is a creator. She writes. She uses language, which is a form of techne. That would be very, very sad to see go away. 
And she even calls this book her hideous progeny, she says. <laughs> So she thinks of it as, as her child, right? as a thing, a thing that she has made and that she herself actually has. She says, I have an affection for it. Okay? So she does actually have right, the affection of the creator for this offspring that she has brought to life. And Shelley herself, uh, of course, knows the pain of loss, the horror of death, and the desire for restoration of the lost loved one. Um, in the passage, that uh, in the passage where she's talking about right, my hideous progeny there, she's actually she's remembering um, writing Frankenstein at a time when her husband, Percy Shelley, was still alive. As he dies tragically very young, um, he, he drowns. So Mary knows the longing that Victor has to bring the dead back. I don't know if you noticed at the very back of our edition of Frankenstein, there's an excerpt from Mary's diary um, where she, she has a dream that my little baby came to life again, that it had been only cold, and I rubbed it before the fire, and it lived. Awake and find a baby. So right, she herself right, has the dream of, re, of reanimating the dead, of the dead coming back to life. She understands that profound human impulse, the profound desire to conquer this most ultimate of limits. And yet, despite her desire to do so, when she creates her own progeny, when she creates her own child, she is warning us of the danger of grasping after that exact power. And I think that is incredibly remarkable. Uh, so as I, as I said, I think one of the most fascinating things about this book is the relationship between Victor and the monster. The fact that Victor rejects his creation and then that Mary Shelley spends so much time on the monster, actually allowing him to have narrative authority where he gets to tell his own story. So those are, I think, maybe kind of two, two really central aspects that I would um, love to pick up in our, in our discussion. If you've never read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, let me encourage you to pick it up. It is, as you can tell, very unlike the movie versions of the story. And it makes a great, though possibly less than cheery, vacation read. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.